welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deep values, the many things we disagree about, and the people behind the positions in our public conversations. Every episode, I interview someone who's got some kind of public voice or platform. I ask them to reflect on what's sacred to them, their deepest principles that they've tried to live by. I also ask them about their childhood and their journey to get a sense of how they've got to where they are today. I try and speak to people from a huge range of places on the political spectrum, from different faiths, beliefs, religious and non-religious, across the divides on a range of our most controversial issues, in the hope that I, and maybe even you, the listener, can grow in empathy and understanding, can get outside our filter bubbles and the voices that we are usually choosing to listen to and challenge ourselves a little bit to understand the complexity of positions and stories and values in our common life. If you're enjoying the podcast, as always, please do take a moment just on your phone now or whenever you can really to leave us a rating or a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, but wherever you get your podcast, it really helps other listeners to come across us. It's a way of feeding the algorithm a little bit of what it needs. Thank you uh, for those of you who've already been doing this. I realise that the little thrill that I get every time I see a new rating or review pop up is a little hit of dopamine in possibly an unhelpful way. This is how our information platforms are now designed. But it is genuinely useful and we really appreciate it. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Sorab Amari. Sorab is an Iranian-American columnist, journalist, editor and author. He's written or edited for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and First Things, among others. He was born in Tehran and immigrated to the US in his early teens. And then in 2016, he converted to Catholicism, which he recounts in his book, From Fire by Water. His most recent book is The Unbroken Thread, discovering the wisdom of tradition in an age of chaos. We spoke about his experiences as what he calls a radically assimilated immigrant in the US, the lasting impacts of that childhood under a conservative Islamic regime, his time as a committed Marxist, his conversion to Catholicism, and why he thinks liberalism has failed or is failing us. I was, as I usually am, surprised at how much more nuanced and thoughtful Sarab seemed than his sometimes fiery social media persona, and moved by his concern for the ideas that will shape his infant son. It was really interesting to see him visibly really wrestling with the difference between Sorab the disciple um, seeking to be a bringer of peace and Sorab with quite strong controversialist tendencies and how he thinks about how he used those different voices and different modes. I really hope you enjoy listening. Sorab, we're going to get straight in the deep end with the sacred, big hefty word. And I try and just offer this to my guests for them to run with however they like. Some talk about their own deep personal values. Some see it as much more collective things they're aligned to. For some, it's religions. For others, it's not. You've had a bit of warning. What came up for you about things you hold sacred or sacred values for you? Oh, sure. I mean, I steer clear of the word values because it suggests um, something that can be measured or exchanged. Whereas I would say uh, that what I would use would be truths. And the truths I hold most sacred are the ones taught by the the Holy Roman Church. I'm I'm a convert to Catholicism. And so the entire deposit of faith and tradition and 
um, the papal magisterium all together are um, non-negotiables for me. It is so interesting that I I spend a lot of time thinking about the way economic and econometric language seeps into our relationships, Mm -hmm. but I've never spotted that values uh, has that as well in it, that sense of value of uh, perhaps kind of trading something or measuring something. So thank you for illuminating it for me. We want to uh, kind of place people in their story, really. One of the things this project is trying to do is build empathy, to build understanding about people from a real range of backgrounds. And my hunch is when we hear where people have come from and the things that have formed them, it's easier to get a sense of, okay, I see a bit more how they've got from here to there. So you have um, a kind of fascinatingly uh, diverse childhood of experiences. Tell me about growing up in Iran and particularly any ideas that were really in the air. Sure. So I was born and raised in Tehran, Iran. Um, exactly. I was born exactly six years to the day the Ayatollah Khomeini returned from his Parisian exile to ha- to topple the monarchy and herald the new Islamic Republic. Um, I was born into a, a very kind of secular, middle-class, um, um, urbane family, um, which had supported the revolution for the most part, thinking they would get something like democracy, which they only had fuzzy notions of or what they expected, or greater westernization than the Shah had already um, um, brought about, and instead immediately came to regret the outcome of the revolution because of the um, uh, Islamist regime that took over. Um, So that's my background, and um, I guess I had that kind of um, childhood relationship with God that children do, where you have a kind of natural religiosity and uh, you think there's a a bearded man in the sky who gives you toys and and so forth. But then by the time I was 13, I declared myself an atheist because I just associated um, uh, God with the God of the Islamic Republic and and, uh, judicial amputations and uh, floggings and so forth. Um, And I had a very kind of um, callow rationalism, you know, as much as teenagers would would have where I thought I want Westernness and Westernness meant secularity. It meant individualism and it meant uh, anti-traditionalism. And luckily enough, we, my mother and I, my father never left Iran, but my mother and I got a green card. Thanks to an uncle who had settled in the United States many years earlier. I came to what I thought was the land of, of rationality, of secularity, of individualism and sort of the, the, America that I had seen in the movies, you know, a kind of decadent 1980s Manhattan. Yeah. As it happened, you know, we were as we were watching the flight pass, we skipped right over New York City and landed in a place called Salt Lake City, Utah. Slightly different in its secularity. <laughs> it's a little different. You arrived in, uh, in 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 Salt Lake City, and and long before kind of God became a live issue again, having rejected what seemed like a very kind of harsh. Um, projection from the Islamic Republic, you had a period of being really quite a committed Marxist, I think. Yes, yes. I started with Nietzsche. So I read as many seven kind of precocious 16, 17 year olds do. I read Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I had no idea what Nietzsche was kind of leveling his uh, fire and fury at because I hadn't actually read the Bible, nor like Aristotle and Plato. So kind of the Nietzschean um, uh, critique 
came on its own without a, having a kind of a deeper background, and which actually is how a lot of, you know, 16, 17-year-olds encounter him. Um, but I was electrified by this idea that God is dead. Well, I mean, I guess he had been alive at some point, but uh, modernity had killed God, and we were now no longer creatures, right? Because if there's a God, you then you are a creature, and a creature is subject to a kind of norm. But if there is no God, then you can create whatever you want to create. You can build society however you want to please. And so I wondered, what, what would you do? And um, the fact was that Nietzsche didn't have a party, but it was true that a lot of his intellectual progeny in the 20th century, the existentialists, when it came to their political choices, were Marxist. So I had to be a Marxist too. Whatever that meant in Utah, I found a, like a Trotskyite cell and asked to join them. And, and um, you know, soon changed my kind of university so I could be at their headquarters in Seattle, which then as now is kind of a hotbed of far left activism in the United States. So, wow. you know, I would sell the so I would sell the Trot newspaper every Saturday instead of doing what normal kids do, I guess, on Saturdays. And People say they're card-carrying yeah. Marxists, and I sometimes wonder how deep that went. But for you, nope, you really were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was a literal card. <laughs> yeah. there, there's a yeah. moment right in, in public conversations and in um, culture where a lot of young people, maybe more, I think, than perhaps in your or my uh, teenage years, the cohort coming through now feels like there is a big upswing in self-declared Marxist amongst kind of top end generation Y, bottom end millennials. Do you, do you have a sense of what's going on there? What is the attraction? I mean, I would say two things. Um, what I encounter among, among the zillennials or whatever you want to call them um, is an interest in Marxism, but it's not um, oddly enough it doesn't have, you know, the kind of Hegelian faith in history with a capital H that kind of the kind of orthodox Marxism that I adopted had, where there's a kind of uh, end point to history and this romance, which is almost kind of theological, right? There's a, the the um, the revolution as this apocalyptic event will se- settle all the injustices of the past, and there shall be no more tears. The sort of teleological politics. It doesn't really have that. I mean, that's that's kind of, you know, dialectical materialism is not a term you hear. You you find it still in the pages of like kind of orthodox Marxist publications like New Left Review, but that's in a way out of tune with with the kind of new socialism. So, um, and so anyway, so so what what's driving my my, my view is, I mean without giving too much credit to my 16, 17-year-old self, that there is something wrong with um, society as we've ordered it. I think that eye-watering wealth inequalities um, kind of are uh, an affront to our our basic sense of justice. I think the the fact that um, even kind of, uh, say, upper middle class, but also kind of, elite status kids stagger under the weight of this kind of hyper competition um, would naturally, you know, kind of open you up to what, what critiques exist um, of, of, of our arrangements. Now I I find it unfortunate that lately that in fact, you, you, you don't often find a proper left critique that it often gets transmogrified or transmuted into critiques about, race, gender, sexuality, which I think 
can actually mystify in a and mystify in a kind of Marxist sense that 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 um, they hide the class antagonisms and um, the economic issues, and it becomes a matter of redistribution among elites. You know, well, I'm trans, black, blah blah blah. And so, therefore, I should be the one occupying the C-suite, oppressing the workers instead of you, <laughs> like white guy with you know an Oxbridge degree now working at um, at uh, McKinsey or whatever. So I know from uh, your book that you you know Marxism dulled, and there was kind of a neoliberal phase, and you took some drugs, and you made full use of the kind of freedoms of the West of traveling as a very cosmopolitan journalist. What? Where did God come from? It seems like a handbrake turn yeah. for a lot of people in that tribe. Yeah. So, I mean, I had had I had a kind of brief college encounter with St. Matthew's Gospel. And I remember thinking, um, as a Marxist, I was very moved by this idea. And it's very strange that God, um, God deigns to be humiliated and ultimately uh, killed by his, by his creation. Um, and there's something very moving in that reversal, and Pope Benedict calls it kind of the great reversal in Christianity, although I didn't have that terminology for it at the time. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I leave college, I, I mature a little bit, I'm working as a school teacher, um, and I encounter, um, I start reading, and I, and I begin to read starting with um, the Torah, actually reading the Bible. And I, in my own daily life, as you said, I'm going kind of professionally from strength to strength, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm um, a good person or that that my conscience is at, at ease, quite the contrary. I sense my interior, this interior voice that says, you know, you're not doing well, you're, you know, you're not making, you're not fulfilling what it means to be fully human, to be fully free or to be truly happy. And so I have to wrestle with my conscience. And the fact that the existence of the conscience eventually led me to believe that there is a, there is a God, because if there's a conscience and it's a voice of an objective moral ardor, then, then there has to be some sense to the universe. And so where is that order came from? And ultimately I concluded that, that it's the imprint of a, of a, you know, a supreme being, a personal God. Um, in the book, I detail, I won't go into it, but I also had a kind of couple of providential encounters with the mass. Like, like many 20-somethings, you know, I, I would drink too much. Or maybe I was the only 20-something who drank too much. But on the day after, when I felt kind of oafish and ashamed of myself, I would pop into, like, Catholic masses. And most of the time, my, my sense of awareness of what Catholicism was was limited to, like, the baptism scene in The Godfather. Um, <laughs> Um, but I was ve- I was very moved by that idea of sacrifice again of of the sacrifice of the altar of of God Himself kind of taking on human frailty and and vulnerability. Um, then fast forward, blah 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 blah. Then I'm working at, in London at the Wall Street Journal, and I finally go to this mass at the Brompton Oratory, which is a, is a Catholic church um, in in Knightsbridge, famous for its very traditional liturgies. And I was so blown away by their particular mass. It's a famous 11 o'clock mass on Sundays. And it brought all of that together for me into this kind of totality of, of the Catholic Church, this, this two millennia old institution um, uh, whose very existence in a way is kind of miracle in itself. It's, it's kind of conti- continuity, tradition, totality. And so I knock on the priest's door and I ask to become a Catholic and he didn't miss a beat. You know, he just said in the poshest English accent I've ever heard, he said, uh, very well, I shall instruct you. Wow. 
And how did your friends, family, tribe, professional colleagues react to yeah. that? Yeah, honestly, very positively. I mean, I, no one, um, you know, there's the, the, the wider public sphere where people are fascinated because I had a kind of public profile and I announced that I was becoming Catholic um, uh, just when I heard that this uh, French priest, Father Hamel, this was in 2000, summer of 2016, horrible incident where this kind of pair of jihadists uh, inspired by Islamic State uh, assailed his church and slit his throat while he was saying the mass. And I happened to announce at the time that I was becoming Catholic, and a lot of people saw that. They looked up my Wikipedia page and they saw that I'd been born in Iran. And so they thought, ah, Muslim becomes, you know, uh, Catholic just at the, you know, because of this one incident. I wish that were true. That would be a lot more kind of a compelling story. But it wasn't like I had been an atheist for 20 years. So um, uh, so that kind of created a kind of public brouhaha. But in terms of my own personal life, I mean, my colleagues were very supportive. I was working at the Wall Street Journal at the time, and it's it's um, very similar to the U.S. Supreme Court in the sense that it's all Catholics and Jews um, with very few Protestants. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they were very welcoming. And, and my family, by the way, is you know, either secular or I have a few Christ, other Christian converts, not least my own mother, although she's, she's Protestant. Um, in my uh, family. So they were all nothing other, either kind of amused because they think all religion is silly or or supportive. That's helpful. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about, about talking about God in public because of, um, I have a hunch that it's almost easier for a convert. But first, tell me about this book, about the unbroken thread and this sense of wanting to really, I think, mount a defense of tradition. Did that, how much was your conversion to Catholicism running in parallel with a with a changing kind of political philosophy? Did one come first? How did that develop? Absolutely, they they, they ran in parallel. So, um, as a secular writer at the Wall Street Journal, um, I was I was worried about uh, let's say, for example, threats to human dignity. Um, so, for example, uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia were concerns for me as a secular, but I had to have an account of human dignity and I ultimately couldn't mount one uh, without without God. I mean, if there's nothing special about human origins, then what, why shouldn't we let people choose uh, when they go and, and uh, speed up their exit, as it were, and just leave everything to autonomous human choice? Um, and so they were kind of running in, I, they were running in parallel. I mean, the new book, The Unbroken Thread, I was born of my, my anxieties about my, you know, what kind of a man precisely our civilization will chisel out of um, our son, Max. He's named after Maximilian Kolbe, the great Franciscan friar who, who laid down his life famously for a stranger at Auschwitz. And as I lay out into the introduction of the book, my concern is that, you know, you have um, uh, this vision of Max, my Max coming back, you know, from college. And it's not that he's like, an utter loser or whatever in life, but just that he's just kind of living a life of purposeless decadence. He thinks freedom just means quote unquote, keeping his options open, you know, kind of getting ahead, hooking up. And that's, that's all of life for him. And in a sense, he hasn't actually exercised his freedom because he hasn't bound himself to anything kind of irrevocably, whether in marriage or religion or what have you. So I, the book is my attempt to try to tether my Max to what I see as a kind of deeper and more correct 
account of freedom um, that runs through the Judeo-Christian and classical tradition, and which is kind of culminates in St. Maximilian Kolbe's act, right, of freedom as surrender, as duty, as self, self-sacrifice, self-negation. D- define for me what you think liberalism is and what is okay. your sort of deepest problem with it. And do you think there's anything it's got right? So as, as you may know, I'm sort of one of the, I've emerged in tandem with my Catholicism um, as one of the kind of foremost um, critics of liberalism. And when I say liberalism, I don't mean the left. Um, I should say that it's, I, I mean the kind of uh, classical variety that is the, the operating system of the West for about three, four hundred years, depending on when you count. Because you're pretty critical of sort of right-wing libertarianism as well. Absolutely, absolutely. As, as critical of, of the um, do as, as you please in the boardroom as do as you please in the bedroom. And um, so what is it that, um, what is it that I'm, how would I define it? Liberalism, ultimately, I would define it as the idea that the highest good of human life is individual choice and autonomy. And um, therefore, that uh, in the public square, um, uh, the goal of society is nothing more than to allow each person to pursue their own account of highest good, which we can know there's no way to agree about ultimately. So the best we can do is to have, you know, police and contract enforcement, um, or in the case of progressive liberals, you know, sort of social help so that everyone can choose like everyone else. But the, the bottom line is that, um, the highest good of love life is individual choice. Um, and and autonomy. So that's how I would define it. So what's good about it? I mean, I think um, there's a reason that liberalism emerged in the 17th and 18th century, especially the late 18th century, it, um, in the sense that it it speaks to something very human, a very human desire to to want to not be arbitrarily imposed upon. And um, now I argue that um, the answer provided. Um, ultimately is, is far worse and, and distorts things about human nature and what makes us happy far worse than any of the kind of uh, ancient regimes that it overthrew. Um, but um, uh, nevertheless, I mean, I, I would give it in this credit that it speaks to, to a legitimate and, and um, uh, ancient human longing. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you to define tradition, which was harder for me to get hold of in the book, partly because, frankly, it's a lot subtler than I was expecting. The, you know, when I came to do some research around you, I was reading reviews and it was really clear how much people were reading the book through the lenses of their expectation. You know, you are head-banging conservative culture warrior. You are faithful son of the Catholic Church. You know, people were very much reading into the yeah. thing, but actually the, the device that you use of a chapter that is a question and then a little biography uh, subverted some of that because you use people like Andrew Dworkin and Confucius and... Um, uh, Rabbi and Exactly, and Malcolm... A uh, man called Temple? I've forgotten his surname. Howard Temple. Howard Thurman. Yeah, Thurman, forgive me. Amazing civil rights activist. And you're clearly that critique against kind of the excesses of capitalism and racial injustice runs through as well. So I, I, 
I came to the, the question I came to is how are you defining tradition? What is the heart of it for you? What is this center that you want to hand on to your son? For me, tradition, the heart of it, the priest who who received me into the church, um, this defined tradition for me in two words, ordered continuity. And uh, what I mean or what he means, what I mean in the book by that is that um, to have ordered continuity means to know where you've come from, that there are these steps leading up to the present moment. And that means there's a path going forward. Now that means that you have a human nature that's legible to your reason. And there are certain things that make you happy and some things that are contrary to your nature and therefore could never make you happy. Um, You have a sense of family history. You have a sense of um, commitment to your past. Um, All of those things provide ordered continuity and far from locking you, I argue throughout the book, far from hindering you, to have a sense of order continuity allows you to actually leap into the future with a kind of courage because you know where you've come from. Therefore, you know where you're supposed to go. Whereas the anxiety, I argue, of the typical kind of resident of a, of a Western metropole, whether that's London or Paris or, or Los Angeles today, and what I kind of envision as a negative vision for my son um, is that precisely in not having a sense of ordered continuity, precisely not being bound by tradition, they don't actually um, exercise their true freedom. They don't actually, you know, you have these, you know, couples, you know, who've known, who've been dating for 10 years, you know, or, or a kind of constant moving, constant restless career changes and so forth. And some of it, and a lot of this has material, um, uh, a kind of material substrate. In other words, people are this way because we've organized society in a, in a, in a certain way. And therefore a real traditional critique of our, um, uh, of our situation wouldn't just say, well, try to commit to marriage and having kids. Why don't you just, why don't you settle down, but seek to change the material conditions as well that make it so that people don't do the things that traditional people took for granted, like forming families and so forth. Yeah, it's a, there's a conversation in the UK at the moment, and I'm particularly interested in, they call it precarity, which is a very sort of social science term that's not that helpful. I use it. I use it. It's a kind of made up term, though. It's yeah, not yeah. So in, insecurity and instability, right? And the way that uh, economic conditions, there's a lot of conversation about the economic conditions of precarity. I'm interested in the social and spiritual effects of precariousness, this dissolving of relational bonds between people and communities and um, the way that forms particular kinds of, of character in us. And again, I, through this podcast and various other ways, I spend a lot of time trying to straddle conversations on the left and the right. And again and again, I'm like, the same conversation is happening <laughs> with different words. And each thinks the other is the problem mm-hmm. when actually often the deep concern is the same. It's one of my... Um, one of my ongoing frustrations. Forgive me, that's a sort of um, sidebar. You know, that's, that's, I, I use the term precarity. And, um, you know, I've been in discussions where, uh, you know, kind of like think tank types and politicians and, and journalists get together and they say, you know, what's one thing that's wrong with American life if you can summarize it in one word? And the word I use is precarity. Yeah, yeah. Right? right. In the United States, if you, if you are likely to get hit with a $4,000 bill, with insurance, if your kid gets sick here, with good insurance, you still are responsible for like $3,000. Um, 
you are not going to, you're not, you know, uh, you're not going to form families. You're not going to form large families. So my um, battle is often with quote unquote conservatives, people who are like, oh, declining marriage rates, declining child bearing, declining family formation. But then they don't see how sort of economics is part of that, right? And, and this is, I mean, again, tradition has an answer to this, which is that, uh, you know, um, St. Thomas says uh, exhortations to virtue aren't enough. Um, they're good. It's great. Evangelize the culture all you want. But also, you also need to have the support of laws. And that includes economic laws that are more just and that are more conducive to um, uh, human flourishing and the common good. Yeah. Um, talk to me about your role as a journalist and having a public voice, because, and I often find this when I interview people, that there is a particular mental image I have of someone, and then I meet them and talk to them and go deeper with their work, and it's they're different, you know, they're more complex, they're subtler. But I'm going to be really honest with you. Someone said, oh, isn't he that like soft Catholic theocrat? (laughs) Well, I object to theocracy for complicated reasons. The term I use is political Catholicism. But look, yeah, I mean, I have entered the scene um, and and kind of taken on pretty weighty issues in a sense. It's, It's odd to be a journalist working in a mainstream institution who is also critical of the entire kind of undergirding philosophy <laughs> of, the, of the of the United States especially. Um, and and I so therefore I find that I speak in different registers to different audiences. Um, when I'm speaking with someone like you, there's and there's a podcast like this which is so well done and it's it's deeper and you you can show your nuance. Whereas on Twitter, um, it's just Mortal Kombat, and it it, all, it brings out yeah, the scruffy. worst, and you sort of. Um, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not always. I'm not pleased with everything I say on Twitter. And on the other hand, there is something even to that where you know you, in the rough and tumble of it, um, you know, uh, either you're made aware of a shortcoming you have, or you'll. Uh, so it's sort of sharp iron sharpening iron, or. Or there's a need to really draw out um, tensions that would otherwise be brushed aside. Especially in the United States, there's a tendency within the conservative movement, and I'm still broadly speaking part of the conservative movement, of constant backslapping. And so therefore, you don't ever have strong critiques. And then the movement becomes complacent as a result of it and becomes blind to issues that it needs to be um, not blind to. What's hard about it is because, is that if you think of of yourself as someone who's as a public person called to evangelize, then there's a tension between Sarab the polemicist, who can be vicious, and Sarab the um, or uh, 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 yeah, exactly, 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 exactly. And to walk that uh, appropriately is not something I would say I've mastered, but which I um, strive to master. And talk to me about. Uh, speaking publicly about faith, because I can feel you have this lovely line where you say the traditional believer has suffered from a kind of existential loneliness of mm-hmm. that sense of being misunderstood. And all the way through the book and in your other places, I can feel this sense of you, you, you part of you thinks it needs to be the main thing because for you, it is the 
the end point, you know, it's the, it's, it's what grounds everything, but then you also are aware you want to appeal to readers and others for whom that might be an allergy or a turnoff or a trigger, right? How, yeah. how do you navigate it in public? And what have you found helps in, um, crossing those divides between those for whom the concept of God makes sense or makes a sort of positive sense. And for those who it actually is an active problem. You know, with people who utterly reject everything the tradition stands for, it's very frustrating. I mean, it's, it is very alienating. And so for example, a friend of mine just wrote a little piece about um, the law of matrimony. Like why was it that not just the Catholic church, which had its long struggle to to to, to banish divorce, um, and and um, other kind of abominable pagan practices, um, and um, but also you know Chinese society and Islamic society and African society, why they sort of so tightly regulate, let's say, the sort of the sexual impulse. Um, and sometimes when you speak to people, and you're like, well, there's something called natural law. And it seems like all ancient civilizations, even the ones who didn't call it natural law, had this interior sense that, that there's a law written on the human heart. And there's somehow is bound up with our nature, that there are certain kinds of behaviors that are blah, 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 blah. blah. And, and it's as though you've come, you're from Mars. <laughs> you know, you're like, <laughs> how do I begin to... Um, so how do I reach those people? Or how do I begin to reach those people? The way I do it, frankly, is by saying... Um, I have this kind of three-word formula called look around you. And what I mean by that is to sort of point out the, frankly, I think dystopian quality of the West in 2021. um, My friend Patrick Deneen has this point where he says, we are very good at creating fictional dystopias like Blade Runner 2049 and, you know, The Matrix, (laughs) but we somehow don't um, have the capacity to be like, hey, that's where we're headed. How do we turn the ratchet the other way so that we sort of reverse course? Um, and I, I try to tap into that by just saying like, you know, sometimes it's a cheap move. You see the latest like sort of idiocy on TikTok and you tweet it out and you're like, wow, great. Look how the open society is going. How wonderful, you know, (laughs) but, but sometimes it means a deeper critique and say like, you know, if you're, if you're unhappy with this and, and so many social kind of objective indicators tell us that people are massively unhappy, not just, you know, working class people and downscale people, but even the elites have their own kind of dysfunction that leaves them, un- leave them unhappy. Maybe there's a better way. Are you prepared to listen to a better way? And I don't know, at, at my best, best, I hope I sometimes get some, some secular liberals to say, huh, yeah, I mean, at least I agree with them on the diagnosis. I don't, I won't go with them on the on the on the prognosis or the solution, but at least I agree with them on the diagnosis. I've had liberals say that, and that's pretty satisfying. Sorry for the digressive answer. No, not at all. It's not. Um, it's a proper conversation, which is delightful. Um, what? <clears throat> where? How do you know where tradition is worth preserving for that ordered continuity? Mm-hmm. And where what has been before is worth jettisoning? Because I can tell that there are some things that you think are worth jettisoning, and there's glimmers where you sound like the Marxist that Marxist that was. Yeah. How, how do we how do we discern that? Given that lots of people carry right wounds, and you as an Iranian know better than most that tradition can be oppressive, authoritarian, and abusive. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's a very good, that's a very good question. Um, 
so the, to answer it, I have to point out that the book um, draws from these very disparate traditions. We already talked about it. It's not just the figures you would expect where there's C.S. Lewis, John Henry Newman, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, but also these other figures, Confucius, Howard Thurman, and, and the radical feminist Andrea Dworkin, the Jewish kind of agnostic thinker um, Hans Jonas. Um, and um, so for me, um, the reason that, that <clears throat> the book subjects are so disparate and seemingly so diverse is that I do think there is something like a universal tradition. Um, C.S. Lewis called it the Tao that unites, you know, Christianity, Judaism, classical pagan philosophy at its best. Um, and in my case, I've brought in, you know, Andrea Dworkin into the picture. She probably wouldn't want to be placed next to these other figures at all, but um, she is there. Um, and so, and that what I, is, is what I call, a, you might want to say like the perennial tradition or the universal tradition. And it, it has certain insights that you are, you know, that the goal of a human being is to be humane uh, toward others, that that you have um, duties imposed on you by by dint of being a human being and having an embodied existence um, and so on and so forth. And that universal tradition, I argue, can be a criterion for measuring other human traditions. It can be a yardstick, if you will, for, for judging other traditions. And that, in fact, it's the only one we have. I mean, if, because it still has a kind of claim to universality. If you don't have that tradition, then um, you can actually tolerate anything. You can tolerate any because you say, well, um, you come across female genital mutilation or you come across uh, slavery and you say, well, you know, that's their culture. That's their tradition. Um, whereas, um, you know, the, whereas those practices, those abominable practices of the past, um, which don't have legitimacy, have often most successfully been torn down. By the other, by this higher tradition or this universal tradition. So it's William Wilberforce who abolishes slavery, slavery um, uh, uh, across the British Empire. It's Martin, based on kind of evangelical Christianity. It's Martin Luther King talking about Thomas Aquinas and and um, and natural law from the Birmingham jail, who is becomes the severest and most successful critic of Jim Crow in the American South. So. Um, yeah, so I would say that how do we do it is, is it, we have to use our reason ultimately to, to distinguish what belongs to this universal human tradition um, and what is merely something that's been passed down, but actually, as you say, should be jettisoned because it's, it's uh, tyrannical and, and, uh, and wrong. Yeah, old doesn't always equal good. Yeah, exactly. So... My last question is, and you can pick which divide you want to speak into this as a as a, a Christian believer speaking to those who are atheists or as a kind of traditionalist in the conservative camp speaking to liberals or progressives or people who disagree with you. What, what helps bridge those divides and build empathy and understanding? What have you learned um, that we could all try? I mean... Uh, you know, I, I, I don't always practice it, but um, the... I use the I use Thomas Aquinas for the chapter on God is reasonable, and um, the argument that I make is 
um, that first of all, God is reasonable in the sense that it is reasonable to believe in a God um, without revelation, right? Without the benefit of of the Bible or the church, just the, the that you know, as Thomas Aquinas does, drawing from Aristotle, that you can you can prove the existence of God using just natural reason alone. Um, but then I argue that if God is reasonable, that is, he's made himself reasonable, um, uh, knowable by human reason, it also suggests that there is an analog between divine and human reason, and therefore God is also reasonable in the sense that he wouldn't, for example, demand of you to to perform child sacrifice, as indeed he doesn't, right? Or he doesn't, he wouldn't demand of you to kill the infidel. That's an unreasonable thing to do. Um, and so um, what I'm getting at is that in, in to bridge those divides, I, I, I would put the emphasis on, 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 on reason. Um, but reason understood actually as the medievals understood it, as this much more capacious thing than just the ability to uh, observe natural phenomena and trace their immediate kind of efficient causes using kind of the scientific method. That's one narrow mode of reason. It's very helpful and noble in its own domain. But there is this wider sense of reason that the medievals had, not just Thomas Aquinas, but some, a Muslim thinker like Averroes or Avicenna or a, or a Jewish thinker like Maimonides. All of them are, allow you to reason not just about natural phenomena in that kind of scientific sense, but also about what it means to be happy, what it means to, to why should you render worship? You know, all of those things are subject to reason. And so to have faith in a reasonable God means you also have faith in, you know, interpersonal reason as you and I or others may be engaging in right now. Sarab Amari, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.